0: Welcome to And With Your Spirit, a homily podcast that takes preaching out of the sanctuary and moves it into your daily life. Let us make ourselves open to the voice of Christ and the movement of the Holy Spirit that we might be transformed.
1: Hello and welcome back to the And With Your Spirit homily podcast. I'm Father Tyler Tinbarge and today I'm sitting with Jim and Amy Schrader. Welcome. Thank you. Uh, Thank you very much. We're excited to be here. Well, why don't we start off with an opening prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, you came to us, sending your Son to be part of a family. And as we celebrate the Holy Family, Mary, Joseph, and Jesus, your Son, we ask that you continue to open all of our hearts and all of our homes to imitate their example and through their intercession, be drawn closer to the life that you long to give us. We ask that in this time, you open our minds and our hearts to the truth and the grace that you long to bestow through these, your servants, that all of us may continue to grow closer to you and your son. We ask all this through Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, so uh, a little hint there, I, I prayed through the Holy Family because today is the feast day of the Holy Family. We're recording this on December 30th. Is it today? It's the 30th? That is the day. Yes, it day. is Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> we are talking about that just briefly before we started recording this afternoon. This feast day is usually transferred to a Sunday so that everybody in the parish gets to celebrate it. But this year, Sunday is taken by Christmas and Mary, Mother of God, New Year's Day. So anyways, it kind of gets trumped and gets stuck on a Friday. So luckily, the Schrader family went to Mass anyway, as all good Catholics should do every single day. <laughs> we all did right. get
2: to celebrate the Holy Family, yes. We
1: did. It's good. <laughs> before running the kids off to their various right, things. And, and uh, yeah, somebody else. <laughs> so this afternoon, what we'd like to talk about with the Schraders is your vocation story. And so first, before before we get into that, why don't you just introduce yourselves who are you? What do you do? Where are you at in life? Tell us about your family, and then we'll kind of go in from there.
0: So my name's Jim Schrader, and I was born in Indianapolis, but I grew up on the west side of Evansville, and I went through West Side Catholic Consolidated Schools at that time, now WCS, and on my way to modern day, And Mimi and I will talk more about that, but I got married in 2000, and after going to Ball State, getting a degree in psychology, I went on to grad school at St. Louis University, where I got my doctorate in clinical psychology. And training in Louisville for a year of internship, and then back to fellowship in St. Louis at Washu, and then we landed there for about a year and a half with my first position before coming back home. So, but certainly embedded here on the west side, and very familiar. Grew up and and as I look out the window, very familiar streets.
2: So I grew up in this parish where we're sitting here today at Sacred Heart. Received all my sacraments here: baptism, first communion, confirmation. We were married at Sacred Heart. This place always feels like home when I'm here, but also went to West Side Catholic School and modern day, and then University of Evansville, and became a teacher. Taught for six years before we started our family. We now have eight children, and three of them were born when we lived in St. Louis. And in 2009, we moved back to Evansville and are members of Holy Redeemer Catholic Church on the north side. Of Evansville, but again, we like to come back to Sacred Heart St. Boniface when we can.
1: Once a West Sider, always a West Sider. Right. Yeah, right. <laughs> I'm surprised you went to University of Evansville for on the east side of town. I, <laughs> so I know, I know. <laughs> Great, and so what is the age range for your children?
2: Our twins, and they are 16 years old, and then our youngest is three. 13, Six eight boys, kids. two girls.
1: Eight and 13 years. Eight and 13 years. Yeah. Yeah. The Maybe first actually, six,
2: six were in seven so half wow! Years. So, <laughs> so yes. you gave yourself a little break, <laughs> <laughs>
1: if we call it that. Yes, <laughs> for sure. So I'm I'm number two out of seven, and there were uh, we were eleven years okay um, between the oldest and youngest. So okay. similar, similar similar kind similar. of space. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. We joke now. it was dense and intense. It was definitely a period of time where there was a lot going
0: on. Things were moving rapidly, and yeah, we look back and, and think, wow, that was six and seven and a half years,
1: but it was definitely moving quickly. So since we're talking about vocation stories in these interviews let's go back to like your early years of life. Maybe we'll start with you, Jim. Um, mm-hmm. When you were a little kid, did people talk about vocational discernment? And did you have any inkling of like, I feel like God is calling me to this or to that?
0: You know, it's interesting. I mean, I mentioned going to Westside Catholic schools and we actually, St. Agnes was our parish growing up. And so I think back to my earliest sense of probably growing up, Father Trailer was a great mentor for me. It was really blessed to, to have him for a number of years. And going through even serving and a lot of things there. And I know that we talked a lot about it. I joke that my first <laughs> inclination of what I want to do is be a scuba diver, but in Evansville, that doesn't work really well, <laughs> nor the Midwest. So I know that we were constantly talking about it. And it's interesting though, you know, think about a vocation, right? What, unlike you'll hear from my wife, I didn't have a sense that, oh, I was necessarily called to have a big family or anything. Although I fe- kind of figured that marriage is where I was being called. But it was interesting. I actually went into college as an environmental management major, uh, which is funny now because I say to people, well, I wanted to be outside. I wanted to be moving a lot. Of course, now as a child psychologist, I'm doing none of those sitting, things, right? Yeah, <laughs> sitting in a room it's, in a chair. Yeah. yeah, exactly. But I think the first year of discernment, like, okay, chemistry class, bio is probably not where I should be. And I felt a calling in many ways to go into the world of psychology. And then looking back, my dad has been in a licensed clinical social worker for about 45 years. So I, I think the seeds of that were already embedded early on, but there was something about psychology that was calling me and not, and I think this is important sometimes for people to think about a vocation and, and I've heard others say this, not because I was like extremely passionate about the field of psychology, but because you, I felt as if it was the right place that God was like asking me to land for reasons I, I didn't, and I've only been coming to know more and more later on. So I actually switched my major from environmental management to social work to psychology on the path of eventually becoming a psychologist at Ball State. And I knew when I did that, I was going to end for the long haul. If you want to go on to to be a psychologist eventually, typically it takes anywhere for about 10 years of training to do that. And, you know, some people just kind of question that decision. Do you really want to be in school that long or anything? But, you know, I think that, you know, when you're in the right place, sometimes you just intuitively have that feel. And, and that was the feel that I had. And I was blessed to actually go to a Jesuit university for grad school which was unexpected, but really a blessing for us as our, in our early years. We, we often recall that some of the most spiritual moving mass experiences we've ever had is actually at St. Francis Xavier College Church. It's probably about a, a church that's probably 150 years old, sitting on the corner of Lindell and Grand, beautiful old church there. And so it was there that as I was going through my graduate school, I started to sense that the faith itself merges so much more with our secular, we call it secular, right? But with the secular world and the sense of like scientific research that we often see as psychology and medicine as being adversarial, but of course they're not, you know, if it's good science, it just means that it's unveiling the design that God has of our world. Right. And I, and we could talk more about this um, as we go further, but it was the early inklings of that. There's a sense that part of my calling was not just to be in the world of psychology, but to help merge for others that world too. And can you give us one example from that? Oh my gosh.
1: Like like things we teach in the church or the faith, and then also that what's been confirmed by science. Like what's what's an example?
0: So, you know, we've often been told that the number one phrase repeated in the Bible or a variant of a phrase is do not be afraid, right? We're we're often told that unnecessary fear, as St. John says, prevents love. It prevents the kind of love that we're supposed to embody. Well, it's interesting when you look at the scientific research behind anxiety, So much supports this idea of why theologically that's so important. So today, for example, the number one psychological complaint for all human beings in this country and beyond, both kids and adults, is anxiety. That's the number one complaint. And what we see is that when anxiety is used as what we call like an informant, a short term emotion that says, "Okay, something's going on and I need to do something with that, then actually anxiety is very adaptive, right? Because we use it in the productive way and we go forward with it. And we channel and make you know adjustments as needed. But as our theology tells us that when anxiety becomes very chronic and it, and it just stays with us over time or it becomes excessive or unnecessary, it leads to a lot of negative outcomes and not just psychological outcomes, but actually a lot of physical negative outcomes. So increased you know, cardiac problems over time, decreased immune function, lots of different things. And so as one of many examples, when you think about the theology, do not be afraid, you know when I was a little kid growing up I just thought about that as here's what God's telling us in a sense of yeah that's that's kind of related to psychology but I'm thinking of it in a compartmentalized spiritual way. But what you come to find out is that again science reveals God's design if it's good science and that anxiety is really intended to be as an informant as something that leads us to a particular action not something that we just chronically like deal with over time. My earliest position was at Cardo Glennon Children's Hospital upstairs. I used to sneak away. I was in a department in a children's hospital. that was Catholic, but that department itself was a secular department. I figured out there was a chapel that had mass every day at 1130, and I would quietly sneak away up to the chapel, um, just take a kind of an early lunch or whatever. And and that earliest neat formation of my faith kind of coming into my work there and was just a really beautiful experience that started to say to me, we need to go search of how God finds his way in all aspects of our lives,
1: even the ones that seem rather secular. So on the, on the do not be afraid then one, so you said scientifically or biologically, it's not good for us to be anxious, right? Well, for chronic, well, chronically chronic, anxious. chronic, chronically anxious. Because right. it is I'm good that fight or flight helps, right? Absolutely, like, absolutely. Get in there and wrestle well if you're a wrestler, right? Or yes. get, move the car quickly out of this right. path of danger, right? Exactly. If that's helpful. Yep. That it help anxiety. On the faith side of things you said that God tells us do not be afraid right so let me see if i can try to is this what you're saying you're saying that like god says it's not good for us to be chronically anxious science says it's not good for us to be chronically anxious that's correct exactly
0: and the chronic anxiety and excessive anxiety over time and from a scientific standpoint it really erodes the body like it really carries a lot of like for example let's take you know kids who experience early trauma right and who are never able to work through that or don't get the treatment that's needed. Chronic anxiety over time creates what's called an inflammatory response. Imagine that when we're all where we should be psychologically, that we we get anxious for a good reason. Let's say we start to cross the road and you see a car coming. Whoa, you get anxious. That's good anxiety, right? Because it preserves our life and our livelihood. But let's say that when you get anxious, you never come back down to a baseline, a comfortable baseline. And let's say you just come halfway down and you remain kind of on edge often, right? Not for clear reasons, but just kind of chronically on edge. That's what we call from a scientific standpoint, kind of more of an inflammatory response, which is over time, people through repeated experiences and trauma, different things can never come back down to baseline. And that's hard on the body. We just see that it really has a lot of, can decrease immunity. It's, It's one reason probably people probably get sick more than desire because they deal with chronic anxiety among other things there interesting so the world is full of it you know. and that's been really the last 10 to 15 years is it's been really a neat thing for me because again historically psychology has always been seen as an i shouldn't say always but often as an adversary but it's not you know again if the science is sound as we would all agree it just reflects god's design of our world and so the question is what we what do we do with that you know how do we Merge that.
1: well, and, and on the other side of things, so not only is if the science is sound, then it reveals God's design, but also if our faith is sound, exactly. right? and not just wishful thinking or yes.
0: magic, right? I mean, I love that about the Christian faith. It is the intersection of what is real and good. Think of prudence. This idea of prudence really is the intersection of goodness and reality as Aquinas and others would talk about. And you're exactly right. If our faith is sound, it will inform us about how we would act in the world. Not only for what we consider to be spiritual reasons, but really what we consider to be, and we'll talk maybe a bit later about my podcast, but for living a whole life as it as God ordains it. It's it's such an exciting thing. And I think when you get into it and you're not afraid of diving in deeper into some of the areas you wouldn't necessarily go, you start just, and Amy gets maybe a little bit annoyed with these sometimes, but you start to like, bing, 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 all the things start to light up because you're like, wow, theology informs science. Science informs theology. It's all... They're the same place.
1: Excellent. Thank you. Well, so let's bring Amy in. Amy, tell us your vocation story. Do you remember being a kid and thinking about what God was calling you to, or was it just marriage was the thing that people did? And so you did it.
2: I remember being a very young girl and knowing, really knowing in my heart that I wanted to have a family and have kids. So, How did you, you know, know play house. It was. It was simply a gift. It was there. I don't remember ever doubting that. Mm. Now, I did have encouragement from my parents and teachers who saw in me a potential vocation to become a nun, to become a sister. And in high school, you know, I went up to Ferdinand and had a visit up there with a few other of my classmates. But even though I I wanted to entertain that idea and and discern that idea, because I thought that would be wise to do, like always in the back of my heart, I knew what I was called to.
1: So when someone said something to you like, have you ever thought about being a sister or when you go and visit the sisters, something is interesting or attractive there, what did that do to this? did it cloud your understanding of maybe I shouldn't get married or it sounds like you were clear all along?
2: Well, I mean, I definitely had some early years, maybe middle school and early high school when I was considering it more seriously as far as like not getting married. Maybe I am called to, to become a sister. I think because like the story of St. Mother Teresa and Sister Joanna Trainer was a friend of my parents who started the House of Bread and Peace here in Evansville. And I got to spend time with her and people like that really inspired me. And I thought, oh my gosh, that what a life to live for God, to be able to not be committed to your own family and be able to just serve the poor. And that always really did inspire me. And I, I thought, you know, okay, God, if that's what I'm supposed to do, then reveal that. But I guess it was probably sophomore year when I met this guy over here. <laughs> so, in high school? high school? In high, high school. school. Yeah, it was early. And so we, we began dating in high school and then.
1: Who made the first um, move?
2: <laughs> I did. In fact, and this no is way. an interesting. Well,
0: we, have to, we should, no, should tell the full story of this one. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, so, yeah, I did. I had been interested in asking him out or him asking me out. But how do I go about getting him to ask
0: me out?
1: You tell your friends and then they Yeah. yeah, yeah, I yeah. know how this works. Yeah. Well, so. The full story is she felt bad for
0: me, really. So <laughs> it, it, it came out of rejection. and This is actually the true story. I was looking for a prom date junior year and uh, I got rejected at least two or three times asking someone to go to prom. They're like, no, nah, I don't think so. And so I I think that, you know, she felt sorry for me. I always joke. And I got a call after she saw me on, was it only Thursday mass?
2: Well, yeah. So that's where this comes full circle to this location. Once again, that, that period of time, whenever we were kind of talking and he had, I don't remember, you had asked me to go to that prom or not, but my family was going to, yeah, Holy Thursday evening mass here at Sacred Heart. And lo and behold, here he comes, who'd usually come to that, to Sacred Heart. Not unheard of, you know, because St. Agnes right down the road. But when he came in and I was like, oh my gosh, God, is that a sign? Like, is this <laughs> is this really real? <laughs> I It wasn't long, I mean, probably within the first year and a half that we were dating, I, my mind was definitely like, okay, this is it. Like we're going to get married someday. Not that we talked about it seriously at that point, but in my heart, I knew that. And then as far as the desire and the call to have a large family, like we do today, I, even as a little girl, like I remember being at family reunions and things where My cousins' kids would all be running around, and I would just go to them and take care of them. And they would be like, Oh, hey, you want to babysit? And obviously, you know, it was a natural thing for me. And I loved babysitting, I loved taking care of kids. And then when I was graduating high school and was trying to figure out, okay, what am I going to do for a career? I felt as a female a lot of pressure and being a good student, you know, a lot of pressure to go out there, get this degree, make something of myself as the world says you should and rise up corporate ladder somehow. Like that was the, the message I felt like I was receiving from the outside world. It wasn't like from my parents or friends necessarily, but it was just this kind of pressure. I felt from culture. culture, Yes. Internally. And then, even while I was at University of Evansville and was an education major, I knew I would enjoy teaching, but it still seemed like a secondhand thing in my life I, I didn't I wasn't looking forward to that as much as I was looking forward to getting married and Being having a, a wife family. and a mother yeah I yes. just I, that was the call that God made more and more clear as we went on and then Eventually, after we both graduated from college, we got married.
0: Always oh, makes the anniversary year nice and easy. What year is it? Oh, oh, yeah, oh yeah, that's twenty two. Yeah, yeah. yeah twenty two yeah, <laughs> years right. this year, right? Yep, yeah. going
1: on twenty three in July. So July eighth. Yep. Yeah. So you said uh, at Holy Thursday Mass, he walked in. You said, "Is this a sign?" Right? <laughs> and then you, you guys went to prom together at some Soon point. Soon after right? that, and you dated that in high yeah. School, right? Yeah. So you said pretty quickly after that, within a couple of years, you thought maybe this is the one. How does that? <laughs> this maybe this is a <laughs> question, but I think I think it's I, I would love to try to find the answer. To, like, how do you know? Like, what did you see or feel or what happened that made you think this could be the one? Well, like, well, maybe, Jim, did you did you think this could be no, the one? I, a year I did a half? pretty
0: quickly. And, you know, <laughs> so, oh, no, you did. I you you did. Sure, no. no, I actually <laughs> did. Uh, here, let's put this. Way. Like we said, we didn't talk about it explicitly, but there was a point and I'm sure our parents will love this part of the interview where our parents thought they're moving a little too quickly. Like they're a little serious for high school, high schoolers. Right? <laughs> right. And they just, you know, they haven't really dated seriously beyond. I had barely dated before that. She got rejected just, by some other people. Yeah, home, I get rejected right? by <laughs> enough people. I was like, I, I think I'm going to forego. this go. one I got her. That's so. right. Yeah. You know, exactly. She's actually accepting me. It sounds great. So I remember early on. So they were a little concerned that we were kind of moving quickly in that way. But then I, didn't, I don't want to say that they tried to break us up, but there was enough going like, like guys, you, you know, you there was considered that. Oh. Yeah. And I, my parents didn't meet until college and, you know, we joke about all those early dating stories in high school and things like that, you know? And so, but I remember when they said that and both families, parents were kind of like, oh, it's a little too quick thinking, no, 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 no. Like she's real. Like, like this is, I'm really found myself implicitly very committed and actually kind of resistant to that contention that we were moving too quickly. You know, you asked a great question, like, how do you know? And I'm sure some of it's early infatuation. We have to be realistic, right? I mean, you find someone that, beautiful woman, it's willing to be with you and not rejecting you. <laughs> and you're like, absolutely. Come on, let's go. Game set that match. <laughs> that match. Let's go. There's aspects, so many aspects of our lives that, I mean, the intersection of, of the kind of people that we were raised to be, you know, the values you know, but you can't define real well, but you know, they're coming through. Those being shared. They're being shared. Like, let me give you a simple example. Even, even what we used to joke about the frugality of our families. We, we always joked in my family that The car that we had had to be at least a decade before the year that, you know, the decade we were in, but it was always old cars driven. You know, that was kind of the way my parents afforded a Catholic education before the voucher system came in. And Amy drove a car. Her dad had a car that had a key in the side that he couldn't remove from the car. So if you wanted the car, there's the key, just take it and put it in the ignition. And if you can get it out, right. But I, I joke about that story because even a simple value like frugality and things like that, you start to just kind of, I think. Implicitly start to put pieces together that says, "Wow, this woman! Like, I don't just see this as something that maybe a short term. Like, I, I this woman, um, not only it could
1: keep working, it could keep now.
0: working. Right? Clearly, I'm very attracted to her, but also there's a sense of this could work long term. You know, and it's really hard for us to even look back. We've been together for." 22 and a half years and we dated for six years, you know, prior to getting married. And so I think it's funny for us to think about, we we look at our lives together as three phases, the dating phase leading up to marriage, the marriage phase leading up to kids, which we could talk about, and then the kid phase, you know, And, and so really there's kind of very three distinct parts of our life together, each of which very rich, sometimes even challenging. But certainly as we all have the story of our lives being told, that's the story of our lives being told is those different phases.
2: And I think early on, it was the virtue that I was attracted to in you as we were dating because it was rare to see in a high school boy such virtue as I saw in you. So that was definitely something as a Teenage girl, most do like think about okay, what type of man would I want to marry? And so is definitely one of those solidifying factors. It wasn't your career or it is funny about the the old cars. <laughs> <laughs> the virtue of <That>, frugality. <laughs> <so>. <laughs> well, living living simply.
0: Yeah, and it's it's humbling to hear your wife say that, but like you think about all the things that we, we are so fortunate. I mean, I, I think about our families and the generations of people that raised us. If we go back, we did a really neat tour about a year and a half ago. Father Nunnings, so many of you listening know Father Nunning well, right? And we love Father Nunning. And he, when our little girl Kate was born about three and a half years ago, he sent us over a genealogy of our families and the genealogy, especially of the Layman family, which went way back upon looking through it and thinking, wow, like it's amazing to think about the generations of people who have allowed us to be here. I recognize that probably a lot of them were buried in St. Joe's Cemetery. And so over a course of a couple of Saturdays, I took a few of my younger kids and thanks to the curator Joe over there, I think it's a St. Boniface parishioner. We actually identified 30 of the graves of our ancestors on three of the sides. My mom's from Indy, so hers wouldn't be there, but we did kind of a historical prayer walk one day through there. And I think that things like that, you know, I think about like our lives and my grandparents and great grandparents and her, you know, one of the neatest things about stories like this to me is that you think about all the confluence of people and places and situations that have to come together for two people to happen to cross paths on a holy Thursday mass, right? And to eventually then share a life together and life can get really busy and really frenetic and you don't pull away to think about like, wow, how beautiful is that? That's the case. But for us, we were just so blessed with families that created, she talks about virtue, but I don't, it's not my virtue, it's other virtues that were embedded within me, you know? And so that's, that's really a new thing for us to consider.
1: And I, I also don't want to skip over the fact, um, part of it was Providence, right? Like you happen to be at the same church on the same night and you're both were, you had not found a date and you were looking for one, right? So I mean like, right. So like that, part of that was just like, it seemed like the, the universe, the stars aligned, right?
0: Do you want to hear and then, even more of that provenance, this is a pretty remarkable thing. So, we years, probably a decade and a half later, thinking about that early story, Amy grew up on Dryer Boulevard on Wright's Hill. And I, when I lived my early life, on Cave Avenue off of Harmony Way, but we moved when I was 14 to uh, Mesker Park Drive. And one day, we're sitting out on her back porch. And if you sit on the back porch of Dryer Boulevard where her mom still lives, and you look out, you can see the golf course. You can see Helfer Golf Course, right? And you can almost see where my house is. And so we thought to ourselves, what happens if you draw a straight line, literally a straight line from 18 Dryer Boulevard to 1499 Mesker Park Drive? Where does it cross over? Well, it actually crosses over right where we are sitting right now. It crosses over the place that we got married years later. So if you think providential, it's hard to believe as the crow flies straight." you would go from one house to the other and cross over the church where you got married. To get to each other, you got to go through. You got to go through
1: this church. Yeah. 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 Thanks for sharing that. So what I was going to say is you, you can't plan that, right? No. And you can't plan the, the the Holy Thursday meeting. But what you can plan is whether or not you're going to listen to your parents, right? <laughs> you know I mean? Like, yeah. am, I, am I going to go to mass when they tell me to go to mass when I'm a teenager? Am I going to try to live a virtuous life? Am, am I going to have my eyes open? to be open like you did Amy to the possibility of a vocation to religious life even if God's not calling me right mm-hmm. and and if cuz that's the kind of stuff that that has to be there as a as a foundation upon which the rest can be built and and I it's it's easy for us I think for young people to say well if God wants me to find my spouse and God wants me to have a happy holy family if God wants me to be faithful then he'll make it happen well you got to do your part too right and it's not again not wishful thinking is there's, there's science here right Get what you can do in the world, do it, (laughs) and then let God draw the line.
0: The science, actually, just something kind of in my mind sprung when you said that. It's the idea of being a co-partner with God in everything we do, right? That is really the essence of like the science behind it says that, like here's a good example. We'll talk about like, you know, nutrition or whatever, eating. The science behind it says that there's aspects of things that we all need to be healthy from a nutrient side, right? God gives us an incredible body, incredible processes that allow us to convert food into everything that we need in our body. But what science has found out recently is that if we don't have the nutrient intake to allow these processes to occur correctly, they don't occur the right way. And I think that your your point just springs home in so many ways from a scientific standpoint, which is that God repeatedly calls us to be co-partners, you know, and and how are we a co-partner? You know, we're going to fail, of course, many times. We're we're imperfect, but like I really I think that that idea of the the co partnership is such a huge thing that Amy and I really believe strongly, and to this day we're still trying to figure out like how is God asking us to be a co partner today on December thirtieth, twenty twenty two because it's an ever evolving search; it, it never ends. There,
2: I think one of the biggest pieces to our whole faith journey, at least mine, involves this very thing in regards to. Family planning, we early on learned about the church's teaching on contraception and natural family planning. And so by his grace, learned that early, I know a lot of people never had the opportunity to even know or understand this teaching that the church has, but we, entering into our marriage, had already learned about natural family planning. And so we're able to begin our marriage with that foundation. So it's kind of like you were saying, doing your part in cooperating with with his will for your life. However, interestingly, so we were married for six years, and then I was teaching at a Catholic school in St. Louis, and he was in grad school, so we were pretty poor. (laughs) So we felt like, oh, we should just wait to start our family and then whenever he finally graduated to the point where he had a, a job I was ready you know because since at the time I was five I knew I wanted children so I'm like you know chomping on the bit I'm like okay it's time this time by this time we're 25 6 7 somewhere in there years old and I was just like okay God it. it's time give us the kid now and it didn't happen right away. Mm. And month after month after month for over a year, it didn't happen. And so I had this very difficult period of time where I was angry at God because I was like, God, I cooperated with you. I done all the
1: things right. I
2: did what you told me to do. And where's this child that, I mean, surely you want us to have children and so that was a really, really difficult year. And I know for some people who struggle with infertility, that is absolutely nothing in comparison to the years of struggle that they go through. So I definitely am not, you know, saying that I understand what that would be like. But in, in our experience, it was in my personal faith journey, it was a difficult time. So my mom, whose mother, she had a child before my mom and he died in utero and she had a serious health concerns and was told never to have any more children. Well, she ended up becoming pregnant and had my mother. So what a gift that was, you know, I have now have six siblings and I think, oh gosh, if if they hadn't been open to that or had listened to the doctors or, you know, God hadn't allowed my mother to be born, then I wouldn't be here either. So during this difficult time when we were struggling with infertility for for that season, she took me to St. Joe's Cemetery, where we were just talking about. And we went to the gravesite of my grandmother and we prayed for her intercession knowing her own struggle with infertility and prayed for her to intercede for us that we might be able to have children and about i don't know it was within probably 6 months from that i learned that we were expecting our twins mm-hmm. so we felt like, <laughs> answered twice in prayer yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And then as our doctor, Dr. Blankey, that many of you might know, joked later, he's like, you might want to go back to the graveside and and pray that she slows things down now. Because we had kid after kid after kid after kid after kid now down to eight. But. but one of the things about
0: that element that I think I want to add, too, is the sense that, you know, we talk about trusting in what God's asking us to do. So back when she was mentioning about being poor in grad school, there was an element of fear about that, too. And you know, looking back, probably again, it was more fear than we needed to have. But here I was starting brand new grad school and, you know, knew I had at least five years of training, at least five to six years of training ahead. And, you know, Amy Fort was able to teach and provide income and you're relying, you know, like asking natural family planning, right? Like what happens if we have a lot of kids that I'm in the middle of grad school and it's you're a real in into, a
1: city where your family's the not, city's at not at
0: here, right, right. We're away from our home and everything else like that. There was there was an element of fear but of course it was also an element of ultimately trust for us that it was more important for us to stay with God's calling than allow those
1: fears to kind of you know change our mind about what we did and so uh, yeah so, so for, for the listeners who don't know what natural family planning is NFP could you guys summarize that for mm-hmm. us?
2: Yeah so natural family planning is a method of family planning where you follow the woman's natural cycle. Of fertility. So, for a certain period of time each month, a woman is fertile, and the body will indicate via biomarkers, whether it's temperature or um, cervical mucus or hormone levels that you can test, it will pinpoint when a woman is fertile. And then, if a couple is trying to achieve a pregnancy, they would have marital relations during that period of time. If they've discerned that it's not prudent at that point to have a child, then they would just avoid marital relations during the fertile window of a woman's cycle. I do NFP presentations too. <laughs> 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 that was an easy one for me. <laughs> I, I thought you did. I thought I, I,
1: I I'd that one to you. Well, but I think it's important because most couples, so I do a lot of marriage preparation, right? So the couples that I do marriage preparation for One of the things we talk about is NFP or or just God's design for marital union, right? And a a professor I had over in college when I was studying over in Rome for a semester, he was married, had kids, not a priest. He was teaching political philosophy, which has nothing to do with natural family planning. But somehow in, in class one day, he said, you know, perhaps the reason that God designed the human body the way he did, the female body the way he did, was so that a man and a woman can learn to love each other in ways beyond sex. He said, like, maybe a woman is fertile only during certain times so that the man and woman can still have the bodily union and just have the bodily union and not the possibility of another child because they need that, right? That's mm-hmm. good. Yeah. And he also then he also said, and maybe there's a time where you're fertile every time each month so that you do something besides go to bed together. <laughs> yeah. He goes, go on a picnic, go dancing, watch a movie. <laughs> he like, he's like, there's other ways you can show emotional love to your spouse that's not physical love, and you need those emotional ties too, right? And he was like a big burly guy with a mustache. I mean, he was, you know, <laughs> I thought it was so good for him to say that because because the couples I talked to, most of them have have never heard of NFP. They they think that they just just use you know birth control pill until they want to have kids, and then they just they just do that. Like, no, to your point, I think that's a great idea. When we,
0: as you know, over the course of almost thirty years together, there are so many other things that we really feel called to do together. You know, we we become really we love the the natural creation of God's the outdoors and. And we've you know done a number of backpacking trips together and other things we've, we talk about, you know, we're constantly moving in some ways, running or biking or whatever else like that. And people often ask us, what race are you doing? And we joke, we're training for life. That's what we're training for. So, but to your point, I think that that is a big piece of, you know, when you spend that amount of time and you invest your lives together, you really have to come to find ways that you share beyond just the physical union. And that is such an important thing. And something that I would say to those listening um, has been a huge priority for us. Like we, one of the gifts that we both feel that we want to give the other person is the gift of promoting the other person's flourishing as much as possible. Now, again, we're going to have conflicts sometimes and we're not going to get along and we're even even driving over here with the little annoyances and things like that, <laughs> right? To be Truth be told. But the reality is like one of the best compliments I think each of us could ever get is that we helped the other person flourish as God intends, physically, psychologically, socially, right? And so from the beginning of our marriage, and I think even when you have twins, especially you learn right away you better help each other because if you don't have have it to give, well then where what do you you know where is it going to come from? And so that has been a big piece of our marriage is constantly finding ways to support the health and well being in all aspects and holistic aspects. And through that, what you find is that you start to share experiences that are really really beautiful experiences. Like I can think of our you know some of the backpacking trips of being on um, one of the neatest ones on the Channel Islands, Santa Rosa, out off the coast of California. And, and we shared this actually with my brother and his wife and backpacking into a spot above the Pacific Ocean. And it was about a 10 mile backpack on an evening after we had done some sea kayaking. And just a you know one of those places that you know hardly ever can imagine getting to, but as beautiful as it could be. And you know, I was blessed that I had a wife who was open to those kinds of things, right? And you not know, something that she had done in growing up and even I had done until a little bit later. And so when you begin to share the whole life, you do find so many different ways that you can connect beyond just the physicality of it there. And that's, that is critically important for sure.
1: So as you were speaking, what I've noticed between the two of you, either answering my questions or when you're talking to each other and kind of just cutting me out, which is great, by the way, whenever, <laughs> whenever, I, do, whenever I do marriage prep couple, with, with couples and I ask them a question and like, I'll ask, you know, I'll ask the, the fiance, the wife, a, a question. And then when she just looks at her her future husband and just starts talking, they're just working it out together. I love that. It it, it turns me into like the referee versus being like the answer giver, you know, like I don't care what your answers are. You (laughs) You should care what your answers are. Like I'm just here to like referee a conversation, you know? Anyways, I noticed as as we're speaking here that you guys are oscillating between like, I feel called to be married and I feel called to be parents. And it's important for us in our relationship as a couple And it's important for us as parents, right? So how would you rank those and why? Parenting and being a spouse.
2: He always tells our kids, I ask them, what is the most important day of the year? And... The point is, of course, I would I would argue it's Christmas and Easter. But <laughs> We're talking about our family
1: life. Thanks, is, Amy.
2: No, it's our wedding anniversary. It trumps your birthdays, kids.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs>
2: because if we prioritize our marriage and strengthening it and keeping God at the center of our marriage, then the parenting will fall into place. But the times, I mean, we have had, you know, there's rough patches in every marriage. And when you go through those, I have found, like, it's hard to be a good parent when you and your spouse are not getting along or there's serious disagreements or whatever it is. And I mean, some people, you know, get separated or whatever. Like, it's hard to be a good parent if the marriage is rocky so prioritizing our marriage and our relationship, we have tried to to teach our kids, too, that that's not a selfish thing. It's really better for you as well as our child, you know, for our whole family. So I don't know. You have anything?
0: Yeah, it's interesting. you getting back to this idea of science merges theology. You find that so authoritative parenting has 60 years of data that says it's it's really the type of parenting that has the best outcomes for kids. Now we can't control a lot of things that best outcomes, but they find that when couples struggle in their own relationship, they often move away from authoritative parenting. They either become really permissive or very authoritarian. But when they when their relationship is stronger, couples tend to move towards more of that authoritative style. It's as if they're working together better in in providing the kind of love and, you know, boundaries and everything else. And One of the things about having twins early on, I think we should say, is that really quickly reminds you again that if you're not working on your relationship and also not making sure that your own health and well being is where it needs to be as God calls you, I mean it's it's hard to raise kids, especially if you've got six and seven and a half years. And I think that that was kind of an early lesson for us. I, I tell this, and this is. The child psychologist, uh, me speaking, but I often talk about this in my sessions to parents who have great, great intent. They go at it like they want to give everything to their kids, right? They want to do it for all the, the right reasons, but they kind of lose themselves in the process. And in losing themselves, they either, you know, they, they find that their health is eroding or they find their relationships are eroding or they find other things are happening. And that it's really important to remember that the best thing that we can give to our kids, I really believe this from lots of different aspects is our own striving to flourish as God intends, not the tasks that we do for them. I want to be kind of clear what I mean by that is that- What's an example? Yeah, so example is like, think about how many times I run my kids to practice over and over and over, right? And I think it's easy as a parent to see ourselves as a taskmaster first- I'm a
1: good parent because I take them to-
0: Because I do all these things for them, right? And that's not a great intent. There's nothing wrong with that intent. But what we found, and I know that Amy really agrees with this, is if you lose yourself in being the taskmaster, and your own psychological and social and physical flourishing is eroding, right? You're not really that person that God's calling you to be, and you're not striving. You're kind of losing the best aspect of things that you can give to your kids, because what your kids really desire from you the most, you being who God calls you to be. And again, that doesn't mean we're not going to struggle and everything else like that, but we early in our lives had this sense, and we both talked about this transformation where we first thought, oh, the most important thing I can do for we can do for our kids is all these things that we have to take care of. But then we started to realize that the way—she was talking about virtue and other things— the way you grow, you know, the way you become a co-partner with God and helping your kids grow the way you want them to is by, the, in essence, the model you're providing for them more so than even sometimes many of the things you're doing. And so it's been a real transformation for us. So what you're
1: saying is, well— Son or daughter might say, Mom or Dad, I really want you to buy me this toy or to take me to this place or to help me with my homework right now. What they really want long term, not immediately, long term, is I want a happy, healthy, holy parent. <laughs> like actual, That'll that yeah. actually make up that would make the kids' life better.
2: And that reminds me of Dr. Meg Meeker. She's a pediatrician and a Catholic author, speaker, podcaster in Michigan. But we've read several mm-hmm. of her books and One of the things that always stands out to me that she tells parents is that you are not parenting your toddler. You're not parenting your teenager. You're parenting the adult you want them to be. So I think the context of that quote was in regard to like being a friend to your kids. Yes, it's great if your kid's like you and want to spend time with you. That's great. But that's not the ultimate goal. You have to get beyond because there's going to be moments and we're experiencing some (laughs) in the teenage years now where your kids don't like you. And so just thinking, okay, we can get through this because the goal is not that they like me right now. The goal is that I'm trying to teach them this broader picture and help them become an adult. Who is virtuous and who can flourish as God calls them to.
1: Yeah, I want I don't care as much if they like me during their teenage years. I want them to be grateful for me during their twenties and thirties and forties and fifties and sixties yeah. and seventies. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: Yes. And just trusting that in those difficult moments of of parenting or in those difficult moments of marriage, that if you just keep making the simple decisions every day to follow him that he will work it out. And uh, that's a a big ask. It's that trust piece in in parenting and in marriage, I feel like. But it's huge.
0: Because the funny thing, the funny full circle thing about that was when we got married, I said, okay, look, I just... I, now I'm open to the natural family planning thing, which really, d- she didn't tell this whole story, but really came through her. I give her that grace that, to kind of pull me in that direction.
1: It was her virtue.
0: It was her virtue. It absolutely was. But I said, I just don't have 10 kids. That's, I mean, I'm like, I'm like I don't want to have a ton of kids. Be careful, guys. <laughs> is that, what why, you is say? that why there's
1: been a three-year gap? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we only have eight,
0: really of eight, right? Just, and I will say that that came through my love for her too, that her virtue became, it's not to say I was like diving in and I was excited, right? But. I recognize I loved her more than my fears, um, in essence. I loved her more than my fears. And so for that reason, that's the only way we could go. And in you New know, Year's removed from that, and obviously the blessing of our kids is a tremendous blessing, but the blessing of we, we so have this value in our home about just, again, back to the idea of like honoring each person as God's creation and the sense of like me wanting to honor her as she sees God would want her to be. And I think for, I want to speak to the fathers out there who are afraid about this, you know, getting into like, oh, am I going to have eight kids or whatever? You know what? I understand that fear. And I still have that fear sometimes that we're not going to be able to provide for them the way that we want to. I ask the fathers to consider there probably should be a greater fear, which is that you ask or force your wife, or I say fathers, husbands, you ask or force your wife to be someone that she's not called to be. That would be my greater fear. That would have been the worst thing for me was to say, Amy, we can't do this, even though in the depths of your being, in the depths of your soul, God's calling you that way. I I couldn't live with myself there. Mm. And so really, to be very honest, the story of that virtue becoming mine was the story of my love for her and the sense of wanting to see her flourish. And that's where it came to be.
2: Which in all reality, we do have 10 children, if you count two that were early miscarriages. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: I guess, yeah, uh, we do have 10 kids in that way. So. <laughs> hmm.
2: Two in heaven, And it's yes. not that scary.
0: It's not, <laughs> and it's not that scary because each day, I, lo- I love C.S. Lewis when he was asked a long time ago through a letter, he was sent a letter and a woman asked him, I think her name was Mary Anderson or something, she said, okay, when you get down to it, you know, all this Christianity stuff, what's it really, really about? And this is, by the way, become one of my favorite lines of all. And he said, you know, that's really three things. He said, it's do your present duty, bear your present pain, enjoy your present pleasure, and let the emotions and experiences look after themselves. And I love that because, of course, you know, he also later in Screwtape Letters said it's the present moment that we come closest to eternity. You know, we reach eternity. And I think that, you know, for all of your life, that simply idea of being in the present, we joke when people ask us, how do you get through the week? And I'm like, well, I don't have to get through the week. I just got to get through this hour. It's not that we don't, not, we're not planned, we we're planful with this, but the reality is that when you live in the present moment and you experience the presence as God you know, would unveil it for you, that you start to find out things are really possible that you don't believe are possible because you're not so worried. Again, back to that anxiety piece, you're not so worried about what's to come and it doesn't rob you of those moments. And you start to say, yeah, maybe this eight kids thing is, it's going to be okay, you know, in your best moments, maybe not
1: your worst. <laughs> So so let's talk about Catholic parenting then. Even as we speak now, it's very natural and comfortable for you to use words of faith and talk about the Spirit and God, right? I mean, like that's that's beautiful. Not every parent feels like they're there and maybe they really aren't. How do you raise your kids in the faith and how could other parents kind of latch onto those, some of those things? And to you, they may not be like extraordinary things. Like maybe you didn't mm-hmm. think to yourself, well, we're going to do this on this vacation or we're going to mm-hmm. start this book together. Maybe you just say, these are things we do as a family, or this is what we do for our kids. Or, yeah,
2: I think we have two different approaches that we have found about our own spiritual method, or I don't know what you Inclination want to call it, that he, the way we have described it in the past is that I start with faith from the ground up, and he starts from the top down,
0: well, in some ways, reason, you know, that she, her nature is to bring faith to the people, meaning that everything that she starts with is where theology is at, right? And This is how she was, you know, early, early when she was a little girl, her dad, who beloved Tom, you know, became deacon here and everything else, brought her down as a little girl church for those daily masses. There was a sense of being catechized from the beginning in a beautiful way that for her, the understanding was always about taking where faith is at. And sending it out to, and we say as parents, sending it out to our kids, right? So, you know, when you listen to her speak, if, you, if you're if you around us long enough, you'll notice that we come to the same place, but from different approaches.
2: So mine is very explicit. Very so explicit.
0: I love devotions
2: to certain prayers, the rosary, the rites of our church, the mass, the incense, like a, in the Monday night mass. I I just love all things Catholic, the icons, the anything that speaks like stereotypical Catholic, I love that. And it feeds me and I want that for my children. I so, think so you're I saying bring- like,
1: you'll just say like kids were doing a novena. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yes, and, and they're absolutely. like, we don't understand, we don't like it. Yeah. you will. You will. Yeah, that's exactly it. right. Is that, is that, that's well, exactly. Yeah. Well,
2: I've had to. Yes, <laughs> I've had to categorize them should, after much more gently than I just said <laughs> that. But I'm just trying to boil it down.
1: So yes. you're, so you're saying you would come from the outside in.
2: Yeah, yeah, or just like I think that it's important to do, like to pray a family rosary, and and even though you know we get grumbles and groans about it, and we don't do it every day by any means, but. When we do, I just feel like the importance of the rituals of our faith can lead you to God just through doing them. And of course, the study that backs it up and the scripture and all of that. And I think what he brings to our family in regard to the faith is more like he has been talking about just how our faith in, is incorporated into all aspects of our life. So the physical dimension, the Yeah, and I would the say the easy way to think about it
0: for people is that I just my natural inclination is to start where people are and see how that migrates us to the faith, right? And and she by her nature, would start where the faith is and migrates it out to people. That makes sense there. What we've realized through not always necessarily pleasant discussions, it's funny how you can argue about matters of faith. You think, why would we argue about this? But is that it has probably been, will ultimately be a great gift to our kids that we come from the two different places and intersect in the middle. Because I have come to appreciate, I love daily mass. I do love other explicit things, but it's not, the even though I was raised in it, that's the, that the nature of where I start and vice versa. And so I think that, you know, for our kids, one of the, you're asking about advice is to teach them both the sense of the mystical, to believe in the things you can't understand and to embrace it, but also back to that idea of being a co-partner, embrace the things you can understand of what you can do. And that together those things, when they merge are really wonderful, beautiful things for your kids because they provide two avenues of uncovering God's constant grace and presence and what we assert ourselves to do through our own free will, and then what we can't do because it's just simply by the grace of God. Which, of course, everything is by the grace of God. But I think that I would hope people kind of understand what we're describing there. So
1: that would be, I guess, our first piece. Well, let's, let's go really practical. So you said an example is a family rosary. You like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The kids may or may not like that. <laughs> right. <laughs> what, is that around the kitchen table? Is that in the car? Does that happen once a week? Does that happen... Every other day, just have a special So occasions. there's periods
2: of time, like Lent or something, mm-hmm. you know, some Lent, where it's every Sunday. Oh, okay. um, we've never attempted a daily one. <laughs> if we're traveling, we usually pray a rosary together in the car. And mm-hmm. other periods of time, it, it might just be hit or miss, but... Allowing them other opportunities for like adoration. The Holy Redeemer has the perpetual adoration chapel. So we'll pop in there and just different experiences like that. are important so, so when you do that,
1: you go, you go in there with whoever's in the car, whoever's not right, at practice right. or something, mm-hmm. right? And when you get in there, how do you corral a three-year-old and also it's get short-lived. a 15-year-old <laughs> to, to engage? It's,
2: it's only a few minutes when we do it, when we do it that way. But yeah. The older ones will, will come in and, pray for a longer period of time sometimes. But yes, if we're doing that, like in the carpool line, I'll I'll pop in there with them. That's a great idea. Our three year old is very active. So she <laughs> she does not want to sit. And, and usually I'm worried that the other person who's in there and has their adoration hours distracted or disturbed or distracted by us. So it's usually a quick visit. But, well, and, yeah. and,
1: and maybe many people who are listening are also the same experience, but whenever I'm praying and someone comes in the church, like a, a family or something, and they just pop in and some little kid comes running down the center aisle and runs back, right? It actually brings me joy. Not because it gives me a, a relief from the boredom of being in church, also, yeah, but because it's it's life, right? Like Because often that little kid will run around and stop at the foot of a statue and just stare for like five seconds, and then they run back. They got something, right? And it, if nothing else, the seed is planted there, like by, by jumping out of the car rider line and going into the, or car, whatever it is, the line, and going into the chapel for a minute, you're teaching your kids, like, God is a part of all the parts of the day. You know, mm-hmm. it's not just morning prayer or night prayer. It's not just mass on Sunday. It's, we've got 10 minutes. Instead of sitting in the car and watching YouTube videos on our phones or arguing about this or that, let's just go over here, just even if it's just for three minutes and in and out, right? Yeah. And she does, she does such a great job with our kids teaching the the idea of reverence and the idea
0: of just kind of like, again, like you said, it doesn't have to be a huge act. It doesn't have to be something long and extended. In fact, it probably is best to be a developmentally appropriate given the ages of your kids, right? Because that's where it's kind of God lines up again with our just natural development. But yeah, she does a great job of doing that. And their kids have kind of, you'll see them, you know, genuflect and not even think about it or things like that. And so that comes through her for sure.
1: Well, and another example was this before we, got, before we started recording, you mentioned that you dropped off Matthew. Matthew's one of their third
0: kids. Uh-huh. He's our yeah, third. third, yep.
1: He's part of our Savio program, so I know him pretty well. I saw him at a wrestling tournament, the Modern Day Classic, uh, over at Modern Day High School today. He was sitting with all the other guys. Uh, anyways, and so you guys said that you t- you brought him to Mass and then dropped him off. And he might have been a little bit later than most of the kids who were at the wrestling tournament because he, he was supposed to be there at 8.30. Mass is from 8 to 8.30. <laughs> okay, he's a little bit late, right? Yeah. yeah.
2: Good for you. Yeah. I, mean, I said, <laughs> yeah. tell Coach. I think he'll understand.
0: Yeah. <laughs> coach is Catholic, so. Yeah. Coach is Catholic and, and very supportive, so that was not a yeah, worry there. but. Yeah, it is. I think that's the maybe the second piece of advice is that remember little things that don't take a long time still communicate a lot. I think that's something that we've kind of realized with our kids that even in the midst of all your busyness and freneticism, you can do little things, communicate a lot about what
1: matters to you, right? About what's important.
0: And and so like
1: daily mass and the feast of the holy family to go to mass as a family before you go to the wrestling tournament. Right. Right. Just, and it does, it does, everything
0: takes a little bit more effort, but the kind of the question you asked by the end of you know, your kids' lives in your own homes is, has that effort added up to something that I want to communicate more fully, you know? And many times, again, we have to do things just to stay alive and everything else like that. But when you have options to do things that you don't have to do, I do think our kids learn from that a lot. They're like, oh, they didn't have to do that, but they did that. So that must've meant something to them, right? Think about the optionals of life. What you do with your optionals probably communicate more than what you do with the required because, it's an option, right? right. It's not yeah. Something well, that
1: yeah, like, like you didn't have to go to daily mass today. And for, and for Matthew and for everybody else in your family, too, showing your kid it's okay to show up seven minutes late to the wrestling tournament shows the kid that it's more important to pray right. than to compete,
0: right?
1: Yeah. You're a good example, Jim, of uh, looking up your ancestors in the cemetery, which, by the way, I'm shocked that there's only 30 graves between all the layman's and Schrader's. <laughs> well... <laughs> It's going be way more than that. My grandpa actually converted to Catholicism, and
0: I think ah. he converted maybe around the time that my grandma and him got married. She was a sheller. In fact, grew up so right above modern day, so cemeteries. they were buried in other places. And okay, so and I was gonna say, but those, yeah. those two names. I know.
1: Is, However, is half the cemetery.
2: Yeah. he was only referring to our direct ancestors, so not like aunts and oh, uncles cousins. and cousins things oh, like oh, that. Yeah. Oh, so direct line, direct line, oh, well, so, so our children's yeah. great, great,
0: great, 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 That's right. all the way back
1: like five generations. Were there? Yeah. Well. Anyway, so, so you found those. You found all those names, right? Or you were given those by Father Dave. And, and with those names, you didn't just say, "Let's go look at their tombs or take pictures for like a for the family tree or photo album." You said, "Let's make a little pilgrimage. Like we're going to pray at each of them, right?" Yeah. That's wonderful. That, that's yeah. That's such an easy now nah, finding all the graves is hard, right? But going and praying regularly at the tombs of your ancestors is a pious practice. From centuries now. And it's mm-hmm. easy for parents to do that on on their birthdays, right? Yeah, right. Like, mm-hmm. what would have been their birthdays, you know? Mm-hmm. Like we did
0: yesterday. We did the, that yesterday. For, her dad would have been 80 yeah. yesterday.
1: His birthday was December
0: 29th. And so we were up there on on the top of the hill at St. Joe's Cemetery. And again, just there for five or 10 minutes, but we were already mm-hmm. around. And so there we go. Mm-hmm. So,
2: And I remember that as a little girl going into the cemetery, which I know can be a little creepy or eerie sounding if you're not used to doing that. But I think because I was exposed to it from an early age and I and I felt how much my father valued that and he taught that to me and we would go there and pray together and he would talk about them and like their memory then would stay alive for that period of time. But because of that, now the cemetery is a sacred space to me and like thinking of of all of our loved ones and and all who are buried there and just praying for them it has become a really neat thing for for me personally and hopefully our kids will find value in that too if not now someday
0: Mm -hmm. (laughs) maybe that's one last piece of thought you mentioned the word sacred Maybe as Catholic parents, what we're also trying to do is to really convince ourselves of how sacred of a life they are too. You know, and maybe that, you know, when you said sacred, I was thinking about your question about what's important for Catholic parents, but is in all the ways that your kids do things is to communicate to them that their lives, just like these people's lives who lived before us, are very sacred. And so what you do, like with your own actions, I can think of all the way from our young kids to our teenagers, think about this. You know, your your life is really a sacred gift. there's a beautiful quote that says. And I forget the author, but in the mundane, nothing is sacred, but in sacredness, nothing is mundane. And of course, our lives are not mundane, even if we treat them that way. And I think that one of the things in, in Amy, I, I give so much credit to her, is make sure that your kids know that they are sacred in the eyes of God. Now we joke, don't act like you're too special because that doesn't mean you get away <laughs> with things. But by being sacred, it means that the decisions you make with your mind and your heart and your body really should reflect that and think about that because if you regard yourself as sacred, and by the way, this is again back to the science, if you regard yourself as having a purpose, as having a calling, as and being sacred and
2: made in the image and likeness and
0: of the image and likeness of God, we know from a scientific standpoint that our kids are so much less likely to take risks, attempt suicide, engage in all sorts of unhealthy behaviors, if they have that relationship and that sense of calling in, in depth there. And so I think that that's probably something else. I was thinking when you said the word sacred, that we really try to... That
2: they are a gift and that their life has purpose.
0: And that we want you to understand that even when it's difficult, we have to go forward with making decisions based on that idea.
1: I was at a World Youth Day in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. How many years ago? 12 years ago or something. And an archbishop was answering questions. He's from Australia somewhere. And he was answering questions from the crowd. And usually the questions are kind of just mild, like... What's your favorite prayer? Or whatever, right? None of those aren't important, but anyways, one one woman got up to the microphone and said, uh, "Why can't women be priests? My, I, I t- I'm a teacher and I teach all these kids that they can be whatever they want to be when they grow up. Like, you can be a doctor or an astronaut, and boys and girls can all be those things. But how come? Why, how do I tell my girls when they say they want to be a priest?" And a few people in the audience like cheer because they were like, "Yeah, give it to the Archbishop," you know. <laughs> you know? And then he and he, what he said was, "If you want to have power in the church, become a parent, not a priest."
2: Mm, wow, he
1: mm-hmm. said because you will have more influence on the life of a person or of people, you will parenting them than you ever will preaching to them. Mm-hmm. Pulpit. Yeah. And so yeah. He, said, he said, if you're looking for a position in the church, become a parent, like that's what's actually going to change the, the face of the, the body of Christ. And, I, and that just silenced everybody, right? Was, <laughs> that was so good. And even, I, even me as a pre, or a, as a seminarian at the time, I thought, yeah, he's right. Like he's, my mom and dad taught me more about my vocation even than my pastor right. did because they taught me what commitment looks like forgiveness looks like prayer daily prayer at home and the mundane looks like so mm-hmm. anyways
2: yeah no that's definitely powerful to think about but holy vocations whatever they are right is what we want our kids to strive for whether it's marriage priesthood religious life single life building that virtue
1: Finally, then, so advice for, I already asked kind of advice for parenting. Any other advice in general? I know, Jim, you've got a podcast that you do weekly, right? Mm-hmm. Any other thoughts that you've got for parents, especially Catholic parents from a psychological perspective or marrying the two? I guess the biggest advice
0: is don't be afraid to find out how your Christian faith applies to everything you do. Because when we start to get into that, and that that's the whole idea of the podcast is the living a whole Christian life is the sense of, but you start to realize, wow, my my Christianity, my Catholicity corresponds to every aspect of my life, things get a whole lot richer and more interesting. And I think that there's an adventure out there for all of us, whether you're a parent, whether you're a priest, whether whatever your calling is, that when you get into understanding that more and you, and you get into the application of your life and how it relates to your faith, it opens up a really neat avenue of opportunity. I know that sounds kind of abstract. I know that that's not necessarily a pragmatic one, two, three, here's what you do. But I think that that's kind of one of the things that, that I heard this line a long time ago that. Life really is a story being told and it's not so much about where you're going, but how you play the role you're given. And I think about what, how do we play that role that we're given? You know, how do we pursue understanding our roles, whether as parents or whatever it is and seeing it, something as great value. And so it's, it's a neat adventure. Yeah.
1: Thank you. And, and the name of your podcast, again, is Living the Whole Christian Life. Living
0: a Whole Christian Living Life. A whole Christian uh-huh. Life. Yeah.
1: Okay, great. And whole, a- a- W-H-O-L-E.
0: Yeah, so that I use, and, and there's it, it's partly based off a book called Holiness with a W-H, The Unified Pursuit of Health, Harmony, Happiness in Heaven. I use the word holiness with a W-H to kind of merge wholeness and holiness together, which is, you know. That, From your approach
1: again. Yeah, approach,
0: Yeah. that yeah. idea. So.
1: Thank you. And Amy, any final thoughts about Marriage, vocation, family life, parenting, any of that for us?
2: One thing that just came to mind as you're asking that is something I've been encouraging our kids to do, which is to pray for their future spouse and mm-hmm. their future vocation, whatever that is. I don't know if I was rare or not, knowing that I definitely wanted to get married and, and have a big family. But even so, not knowing you know, who that spouse will be, but a lot of people, our kids are close to discerning college, thinking about do they want to stay in Evansville or go somewhere else or what kind of career path might they want, vocation. I mean, just whatever it is, just keeping that kind of at the forefront of their prayer as they grow up, say, God, let me know what you want me to do with my life. I think is it's been on my mind lately to help my kids because as a parent, you just want the best for them. You want them to grow up and be good, holy people. And I pray that they find heaven someday. But in the meantime, there's a lot of choices and a lot of things that they'll be doing in this world. So just to encourage parents who might be listening, that is a little tip I heard years ago. And and now we're kind of at the point where our kids are going to be making those decisions on their own for themselves soon. It's a comforting thing for me as a parent. You feel kind of helpless in some ways. You have no idea what they're going to be doing in a few years after they leave your house.
1: Well, thank you for joining us this afternoon. It's it's clear that you've got a beautiful marriage and and not because your marriage is perfect. We didn't get into the much of the challenges (laughs) part of things. We just didn't go there in the conversation and maybe you don't want you don't want to go there either but no definitely uh, no. there's challenges yeah, yeah. Challenges. yeah. But, but it's clear that your marriage is is beautiful because because of your faithfulness to god and to one another what makes a great marriage is not like we we checked all the right boxes at the right stages in our life or we have this this romance that never <laughs> wanes you know what's beautiful about a marriage is it's the covenant of i've is saying no matter what happens i'm still in right and that's the three-way partnership or you each of you and god right so so anyway, so thanks for sharing that for the, with the world, but also with us in this podcast today.
2: Thanks for having us.
1: Thanks so much for having us. That was, that was wonderful. And, uh, Jim, would you like to close us in a prayer? Sure. In the Father,
0: Son, Holy Spirit, and dear Lord, thank you for these beautiful present moments that we share today. And just keep us in these present moments throughout our lives, even when life gets difficult and we find ourselves worried about what may come or what has been. Remind us that you are with us at all times and that each moment is possible with your grace. Thank you for all the people in our lives that have really invested in us, the people that we don't even know, but have allowed us to come to be where we're at. And when we find ourselves in despair or find ourselves in sorrow, remind us, Lord, that you're never far away at all. In fact, that you remain with us in ways that we may not even understand and in ways that we may become much clearer. So, Lord, in all that we do and all that we are asked to be, please help us reflect your voice, your spirit in this world. And bring us back to the center of the source of who we should be. Amen.
2: Amen. Send the Holy Spirit. amen. Amen.